Welcome back to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is Tim Maluli. On today's episode, uh, I'm here with Brendan, and we've got a handful of very good articles that we wanted to talk about. So, Bren, what's up first? Well, first and foremost, Pete Alonso won the Home Run Derby last oh, night. Oh, yeah. So. Big news. Uh, we got to start off with that. Yeah, po- Polar Bear Pete, the uh, new <laughs> yeah. Mets slugger, is home run champion of the world. So that was fun because the Mets stink this year, and it was kind of nice to see somebody from their team do something uh, yeah, we not, fin- not important, but entertaining and fun. Yeah, finally have something to cheer about with the Mets 10 games under 500 and floundering. Floundering. Yeah, big time. Looking bad. So, yeah, that was, so. that was nice. Although, there are people online, obviously people like to complain about stuff, but they're like, oh, Vladdy hit 91 home runs last night and lost. It's like, well, yeah. You That's, can't go back and change the rules after the fact. Yeah. Like, people just are complaining that, like, Alonso didn't really win. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, he did. He he won. Looked like Vlad Jr. maybe wore himself out in the uh, previous two rounds. Definitely yeah. great show all around. I, yeah. I thought it was one of the more entertaining uh, homer derbies in recent memory. Yeah, definitely. It's just typical Mets fashion, though, that... Even when they win something, everyone's like, nah, they didn't They didn't really win. Like, Vlad won. It's like, yeah. oh, gosh, just let us have this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we could use one. Yeah. For sure. Uh, so, anyway, an article that I saw over the last week in the Wall Street Journal was talking about how uh, some banks may be paying for things like their customers' Amazon Prime or Hulu uh, subscriptions now. This yeah. is this is a new thing, apparently. What what do you think about that? When I first saw the headline, I was like, "That's outrageous," yeah. uh, but in like a good way. Mm-hmm. It's like I I want to go bank with that bank, <laughs> and I guess that's the intended response that they were hoping to have for a lot of people. Yeah, um, Re- reminiscent of uh, credit card rewards. Yeah, uh, this is banks now want to get uh, the checking business because. It's it's one of the more profitable lines that they have because yeah. nobody really expects any interest payments on their uh, checking accounts and they're pretty sticky in the sense that people don't move them a lot and maybe do uh, ancillary business with right. with the bank uh, after they open a checking account. So, yeah, it like gets their gets their foot in the door. Like if you open a checking account, you're more likely to use the rest of the services that yeah. the bank offers. Yeah. When they explained it that way, I didn't really at first. I didn't think about it think about it that way that like the checking account business being a big business for banks or one that they are going after but the way that they explained it it, it does make sense yeah. changing your primary checking account is a pain in the butt because there are yeah. a lot of things for a lot of people where auto auto paid bills are coming out of there or right. auto deposit for your paychecks and changing that is more effort than it's worth sometimes but uh, they're getting people to do this. The degree to which uh, it's happening, maybe maybe not as much. Therefore, the uh, new incentives. They yeah. they had some numbers in there about people changing their primary bank account. And they were saying it's a, it has to do a lot with some savings accounts and like online banks are now offering more uh, interest for their account. So it's actually worth it for some people to jump over those extra hurdles and like pick up and move their accounts. Yeah, but but even still, they, they shared that over the last year, uh, only like 4% of people changed their primary bank accounts. And right. so maybe that's why they're trying this new yeah. shtick where they're going to pay for your Netflix for a year or whatever. Yeah. Um, these things tended to fall into the couple hundred dollars range. And, and the way that it seems like it works is uh, it's a rebate. And yeah. so you pay for the subscription and then it's rebated if you pay for it out of the checking account that you have with the bank who right. has made this promise to you. So yeah. uh, similar to getting 
airline points or uh, any any other kind of rewards really. And and the same goes for that. Some people will try to game the system and hop around and rack up points. And my opinion there is if you can do it and not suffer any negative ramifications, uh, then great. Yeah, might be a pain in the butt, but if say. if you think it's worth it. That's cool, and there are certainly people who seem to uh, truly game the system here. But for a lot of other people, maybe not worth it, and you just pay your eleven ninety nine a month for Netflix and yeah. call it a day. For me personally, I mean, I don't have the time or the interest to jump around from bank to bank and like optimize or game the system like some of these people. But like you said, if they if they can do that and they want to, more power to them. For me personally, I think it's. I saw the headline, and I was like, that's really cool, but. It's still not for me. It's not cool enough to make me like doesn't move the pick needle up enough and, for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah not. I mean, not we already have. I already have some of these subscriptions anyway, so mm-hmm. it's like, eh, I'm I'm good. Yeah. But it's definitely uh, an interesting concept that you never think to tie the two together. Yeah, it's, it's like usually tied more to Hulu credit cards and, or like, something. Checking like that. accounts. Yeah, yeah it's right. uh, interesting when you see a headline like that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Along the same vein as subscriptions, there was a post in Forbes recently talking about. Uh, Netflix's worst nightmare has come true. Yeah, um, I saw, um, you've probably seen all over the internet, like shows like The Office is leaving Netflix. Uh, mm-hmm. I just saw, literally right before we walked in, I saw a tweet that said Friends is now also leaving Netflix. It's going to uh, be on the new HBO platform. Yeah, HBO Max or whatever uh, it's called. And so in addition to those two things, because I guess The Office is going to be on NBC's version of a streaming service. Yeah, Disney is obviously the big one, yeah. which will debut later this year. At six ninety nine a month, I think they said. So they've all. They've, yeah. Not only are they going to have all of the you know Disney content that that you would know and love, yeah. uh, cartoons aside, they also have like the Avengers movie franchises. Yeah. Like they were saying that in the article, we'll link to it in the show notes. But they were they listed out like the top movies and the top franchises and even like some of the top TV shows yeah. over the last year. And literally at the top, all of them were Disney. Yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff going to be leaving all the other platforms i mean netflix included obviously but if they're on anything else they'll be gone too onto the disney plus package and at about half the cost of what netflix costs per month now and so this article was using that to make a bear case for netflix basically saying like look they're losing all of their best shows and they're borrowing money at a ridiculous rate yeah uh relative to the actual profit that they turn per year. You know, like you, you read this thing and you're like, oh my God, I guess I, I should go sell Netflix. I, I should short <laughs> Netflix, short it, not yeah. even sell it. Like this is crazy, but we don't know. Like this was all conjecture. Like I don't really know yeah. for sure. Are people necessarily going to cut uh, their Netflix subscription to add Disney Plus or this new HBO yeah. thing that it, they're, or are they going to do it in addition to their Netflix? Right. The whole thing with the subscription model that, that everybody loves from a business standpoint is that it's recurring. It's like a recurring revenue. And so your Netflix becomes like a bill that that comes out of your account and people tend to just leave those things alone. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to cancel Netflix and pick up these other streaming services. They can, like you're saying, just add it on top. No one really knew when Netflix was like the first big streaming service that did this. So they had a handful of years where they didn't really have any competition. But obviously, you know, like that's not going to last. And Mm -hmm. now we're seeing it come to fruition where a lot of other streaming services are becoming prominent. But that also doesn't necessarily mean that Netflix is just going to fold and go to zero. Like we don't know. Netflix was like a DVD rental company and then they became a streaming service. 
and who knows what they're going to be in five, right. 10, 15 years. It's to, say like, that, to say that they're going to stand still while everybody else continues yeah. to innovate around them is like, they I, could. I don't really know. Yes, certainly like it's, it's a possibility, but one of like the bigger points that, that you had brought up before we uh, started recording was just the idea that a huge stock, a huge company uh, that's been very popular over the last several years, like a Netflix, yeah. we never know which of today's market leaders are going to be in the dumpster in three, five, ten years. It, right. it, it always seems like these companies are going to... They're uh, going to be around forever. Right. We're going to the moon. This thing can't go down. And if you look at all of the biggest companies by each decade, uh, I've seen a chart of this where... <laughs> many of them just disappear. You see, yeah, you see the names fall off. I mean, or, Tom or, says it all the time. It's like, look at the names on the Dow when the Dow was created, or yeah. even the Dow like 20 years ago yeah. or 30 years ago. Like some of those companies don't exist. Some of them are still there, yeah. but they're smaller. Mm -hmm. Some of them are bigger. Right. It's like you you don't know what these companies are going to do over the next five or 10 years. I actually saw a really cool chart today. Uh, I'll I'll dig up the link and maybe we can put it into the show notes. Yeah. Uh, and the chart showed the S and P 500 over time. I forget the exact time period, but it showed the S and P 500 over time versus just owning the biggest company in the S and P 500. Okay. And every time that it changed, it changed yeah. you to just holding that one biggest stock, and you underperformed massively. Right. Because the growth is coming from companies that are new, newly entering the S and P 500. Like that's right. where some of the biggest growth comes from. Not necessarily the most popular, well-known names yeah. uh, that are out there. Just an interesting, uh, interesting thought to consider. Because you know, naturally, products like a like a Netflix or name any other big company uh, yeah. that, that we use all the time are the most popular names, the ones we hear about in the news all the time. We hear bull and bear cases like this for these stocks all the time yeah. because making calls on them is uh more it's more interesting it is because everybody knows what you're talking about yeah. so take it with a grain of salt because literally nobody knows where we're going and uh yeah. you, you probably don't want to just be levered up in names that you know you almost certainly want to have some diversification there yeah can't predict the future Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Speaking of not being able to predict the future, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that was titled, Where to Invest When the Fed Cuts Rates. Yeah, talk, and, talk about trying to predict the future. Yeah. No, no kidding, right? The, the word I underlined and like circled the word when. <laughs> Here's where to invest when the Fed cuts rates. Like it's going to happen. It's definitely mm -hmm. going to happen. It's like, yeah, it, it will. But it, that yeah. implies that it's coming like 100%. That we know for sure. For sure. Right. And that, that Here's what to be, do when this happens. So we should be positioned like this for when this happens. Also, yeah. the way that they laid this out was basically by looking at the last four times the Fed began uh, cutting interest rates to like discern patterns from these occurrences, right. as if four instances give us enough yeah, of a sample size. Yeah, sample size. Right, and the sample size literally told us absolutely nothing. Right. Two, yeah, they looked at four times. It was 1995, 1998, 2001, and 2007. Right. So after the Fed started lowering rates, 
1995 and 1998, stocks rallied. Right. And after they started lowering rates in 2001 and 2007, stocks went down. Right. So we're left with a 50-50 shot that if they lower rates this time, stocks could go higher or stocks could go lower. <laughs> wow. That's literally the... the wow. Pro- that's, that is the proposition. <laughs> Groundbreaking stuff. We are faced with that proposition each and every day. Because if you look yeah. at the daily odds of the market being up or down on any given one day, yeah. it's it's coin flip odds more or less. Yeah. Um, I mean, I jokingly said groundbreaking stuff, but in a sense, it, it kind of is because when you've been reading about what's going to happen when the Fed mm-hmm. cuts rates, it almost seems like it's a guarantee that like this is going to be great for stocks. Yes. You know, this like, is going like, to prolong the, the bull market. And it's like, that that's not necessarily the case. Like this article showed that there's a 50 50 shot not only as always not only were the odds 50 50 in terms of the last four times what direction the market went in after a rate cut uh it also had a chart at the top that showed from the rate cut two years out uh from each of these instances that you just named 95 98 2001 2007 and and it showed like the actual performance not just the direction right and and the performance ranged from like plus 50 percent to minus 50%. Yeah. And so not only do we have 50-50 odds of being directionally correct if we're going to if we're going to assume that one of these instances is exactly like what is unfolding now, which it probably isn't. Right. Uh, we have 50-50 odds of being directionally correct, but the degree to which we're going to be directionally correct, it, it could be anything yeah. based on based on history. Yeah, So a- if past is prologue, we have no freaking clue. Yeah. <laughs> is what I took away from that. Yep. Exactly. That was the one one point I had about that article, and so, you just you're just seeing more and more of articles like these, like when this happens, this is going to happen. Right. I think if X, then Y. Like yes. this is going to happen. And that's that's not the way the world works because when when you break down something like this, it's more about the sentiment or how people react or interpret things like uh, a rate cut. Because to think of the actual economic ramifications of a 25, 25 basis point, a uh, quarter of 1% rate right. cut or hike yeah. in whatever direction we're talking about. What what are the actual economic ramifications of that? Like, like you do, take the human response out of it. Yeah, what are, what are businesses changing based upon that level of interest rate change? It's not changing much in my opinion, but it, yeah. it may be changing the way that people feel, which right. certainly has an impact, not dismissing that. That, that yeah. is literally what we're trying to predict though. So when you break it down to, we're not really working with numbers here. We're 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 working with how do people feel? How yeah. does the market collectively, millions of people, how do we all feel about a rate cut? Do we think yeah. it's good because it's going to prolong the rally? Do we think it's bad because it signals that the economy isn't good? I don't know. Yeah. It could be a million other things it too. It could be yeah, like it could be good because it's going to prolong the rally. It also could be bad because it's going to prolong the rally. Like. You know, you never know. Like, it could end up being a bad, like, good news is bad news, bad news is mm-hmm. good news, bad news is bad news, and right. good news is good news. Like, there's so it's many just head scratcher. Po- like, yeah. we could tell you what, if if we wanted to assume that we knew for sure what the Fed was going to do at their next meeting at the end of the month, and we had the answer ahead of time, like, we had right. Biff's sports almanac yeah. from uh, Back to the Future, I st- we still wouldn't be able to uh, take that information and make a good investment today based based upon just knowing if they're going to cut or if they're going to leave it leave yeah. it alone or, or what what they're going to do yeah we need to know how everyone's going to how does everybody feel it. about that yeah so that's just impossible that's a very uh 
risky bet in my opinion to to be making a bet based on sentiment of whether or not the fed's going to cut rates uh no no doubt and i think that that type of thinking where we need an answer for sure is is kind of uh along the lines of another article that i wanted to bring up where again from the wall street journal like the previous one they talked about uh as stocks surge to records nervous investors buy bonds too yeah which which i think they were trying to present the case that people are confused maybe like as we were just alluding to maybe we don't know what's going to happen with the fed and so some people are buying stocks because you know stocks are going up yeah uh conversely other people are nervous and they're buying bonds yeah uh, because they don't know what's going to happen and and we i think we mentally separate these people out into two distinct camps as if you can only be optimistic and buying stocks or or nervous and pessimistic and buying bonds as a result and that's not the case no like who who says that investors cannot be buying a mixture of stocks and bonds that is appropriate for their situation like like if you yeah if you should be 50 50 stocks and bonds based upon your financial plan and what you're intending to do with your money over the next couple of decades then if you have new money to put to work and you buy half stocks and half bonds you're not so much expressing a viewpoint of being nervous because you bought some bonds or being uh optimistic because you bought some stocks as you are just being sensible right by sticking to your to your knitting to your game plan the tone of this article kind of rubbed me the wrong way because it made it seem like with the market equity market at record highs you're doing something wrong if you're buying bonds stocks are at all-time highs why would you be buying anything other than stocks if anything now might be the best time to be buying bonds like you don't want to buy bonds when the market's going down and you wish that you had the bonds right to cushion the blow in your account Mm -hmm. you know you want the diversification you need to buy it before before you need it yeah it's like car insurance uh, yes exactly and and that's the way that a lot of people view the bond part of their portfolio is as you know insurance for the stock side hopefully going to hold up traditionally has when the market falls out of bed i think the problem is that we naturally want uh, an answer like, okay, I have money. Should I buy stocks or bonds? As yeah. in, as in, or like, what is what's other. going to occur and which one is going to be the best? Right. Rather than, you know, you don't need to look at this as like an either-or proposition. It, it can be both, and yeah. it's to which, like to what mix? To what degree should I put this money to work in stocks and bonds? Is a far more boring and appropriate question because it doesn't involve you predicting the future. Yeah or expressing a viewpoint over the short-term uh, outlook for, for stocks or bonds specifically. Yeah, You're right. just saying, hey, look, uh, based upon your circumstances, it would probably make sense to split it up this way. Here's why. And you go from there. But that's that doesn't make for good articles. And so people yeah. try to find a narrative to support why they should be in one camp or the other. Yeah, uh, definitely. They almost certainly don't need to be. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely more interesting to to polarize things like that and you know make it make it black and white one or the other, uh, but it definitely doesn't need to be. And I think that that's the You're main takeaway from that article. Almost always better off not uh, making binary yeah. decisions or being firmly in one camp or the other. Right. Uh, it's almost always about the nuance, and that's where you can you can really tailor what you're doing to your situation rather than prognostications or uh what what somebody is predicting on the news or whatever it may be yeah definitely that's going to wrap up this episode of the maluli asset management podcast thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next one